When we're going through a deep, dark time, we need people who will tell us the truth in love, as Pastor Ed explains. There are times in our lives when we're in the depths of difficulty where we need someone to come to us and speak the truth in love. Or even just ask the question to approach the subject. How are you doing today? Or why are you crying today? Or get to the root of the issue. Because our human tendency when we're going through something is to search high and low for someone that will agree with us. Especially when we're sad. You know, come around, pat us on the back. Yeah, you know what? It's all their fault. And you should be sad. So it's okay. And you know, just kind of come alongside and take sides with us. But that's not always healthy. Because sometimes discouragement and sorrow can turn into self-pity. And when you're in the midst of self-pity, the last thing you need is someone to come alongside of you and encourage your self-pity because it's self-destructive. This is amazing grace. Well, hey there. Welcome again to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're at the tail end of a study in the Gospel of John. After Jesus died on the cross and was raised to new life, he made a special reappearance on earth to prove that he was alive. Not everyone reacted as you might expect. One didn't realize it was him. Another wanted more evidence. Let's get all the details now as we join Pastor Ed in John chapter 20 for his message, Do Not Be Unbelieving, But Believing. John chapter 20, we'll pick up in verse 14. Uh, we're at the tomb. Jesus is risen again. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you know, really, it's too bad that the resurrection of Jesus gets so much attention in April, around the time of April, which is good. We'll preach it. But really, as believers, we get to enjoy the resurrection of Jesus every single day. It's the very power of God within us that enables us to please him. And now we have uh, Mary at the tomb. She turns around in verse 14 and she sees Jesus standing there, but he, she didn't know it says that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. This is a sweet dialogue that we've looked at in previous study, but it's worth repeating today. We have an example of Jesus, really an example for us as we're serving people and ministering to people, how we need to draw out from them what's deep in their hearts. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving her the, he's giving her the opportunity to express herself. This is not just a, a tear on the cheek kind of moment. Mary, we learn, was weeping. And the word literally means out of control. She was out of control emotional. Everything that, that, everything that she banked her life on, Jesus is, is gone. She watched him watched them die a violent death, buried in a tomb. And now that she's going to pay her respects, he's gone. She thinks he's been stolen or moved. And it's just like one thing after another after another. That's where she's at. One more thing to deal with. And yet right in the midst of her pain, Jesus appears, but she doesn't understand who it is. And he's revealing herself one time. Now, some people wonder, why can't she understand? Why can't she recognize? 
possibly tears in her eyes. That's a possibility. Like she's so completely lost it that it's hard for her to see clearly. But I think it's probably more along the lines that he is veiling himself for a moment to draw out from her this faith and this hope. Because we see him do that in another place in Luke 24. In Luke 24, he's with the men on the road to Emmaus, and their eyes were blinded, it says. They didn't quite understand who it was until over time in the conversation, Jesus revealed himself. And, And so we know that that's the pattern. Jesus comes in a time of difficulty and and, and a tough time and speaks the truth to her. You you might look at this, verse 15, woman, you know, it's a stern word, uh, although it's a word of endearment. Why are you weeping and who are you looking for? That's a difficult question to ask someone that's been weeping because someone that's been weeping is hard to approach. I mean, if you look at it, if if you look at your life, And somebody in the room today, perhaps even as we were praying earlier, someone in the room today, or they didn't even make it upstairs, they're down in the cafe, and you could just tell they're they're having a hard time. And maybe it's convulsive weeping, or their head is down, they don't want to make eye contact. You know what our natural response to folks like that is? Normally our natural response is to avoid people like that for a variety of reasons, not all bad. Sometimes the bad reasons, like I don't want to deal with it and I don't, want to, I don't know what's wrong with them. Because you're not a crier. Someone that's crying kind of is the opposite end of the spectrum for you and you just don't want to deal with them. Or, and, but it's not always bad. Sometimes it's just, you know, you, you, you're walking by them and they catch your eye and then you, you don't make the decision fast enough. Or it, Usually we move forward. Unless you have the gift of mercy, then you're naturally attracted to people like that. And you might be thinking, but Ed, no, no, not me, not me. I'm always seeking them out. That's good. You probably have the gift of mercy. Praise God for the men and women that have the gift of mercy uh, in the church. We need you. We need you more because it's a draining, exhausting gift to have to be involved in everyone's pain and suffering all the time. Here, Jesus comes and asks her the question, approaches her and asks her the question. And he speaks words to her that are hard. Asking someone why they're crying in the midst of their weeping can be pretty hard. And sometimes in our difficulty, you know, let's put ourselves now from taking the focus off of Jesus for a moment and let's put ourselves back on Mary uh, and, and say we're the ones that are going through a deep, dark time. You know, th- there, are, there are times in our lives when we're in the depths of difficulty where we need someone to come to us and speak the truth in love. Or even just ask the question to approach the subject. How are you doing today? Or why are you crying today? Or get to the root of the issue. Because our human tendency when we're going through something is to search high and low for someone that will agree with us. Especially when we're sad. You know, come around, pat us on the back. Yeah, you know what? It's all their fault and you should be sad. So it's okay. And you know, just kind of come alongside and take sides with us. But that's not always healthy. Because sometimes discouragement and sorrow can turn into self-pity. And when you're in the midst of self-pity, the last thing you need is someone to come alongside of you and encourage your self-pity because it's self-destructive. Now, I have to say, this is a gentle, this requires a gentleness and to be led by the Spirit because to speak the truth to someone, we need to learn to speak the truth in love. Not assuming we know everything, not assuming we have all the answers, but coming alongside to help navigate the rough waters of feelings. Because feelings 
can often lead us to bad decisions and unhealthy choices that will only make things worse. And, and the problem with feelings is, is they're so stinking real, but so often they lie to us. And we need someone to come in and say, hey, look, I know it's hard right now and it's difficult. I'm here with you, but let's sort through your feelings the way the Word of God does. Let's take our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to help walk alongside of you. Sometimes we refer to that as, well, in Proverbs 27, verse 5, it says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Open rebuke. Or in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 23, it says, he who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. And the idea behind the word rebuke is correction. It's not to get in someone's face and scream at them or, you know, get in someone's face and just tell them all the wrong things in their life. There's no spiritual gift of rebuking, okay? So don't start, oh, Ed just gave me permission to start my brand new ministry, rebuking. Come to me for rebuking. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not. This is a personal, you know, it's a time where you, you just got to tell somebody the truth. Let the Lord sort it out. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to argue with them. Just share the truth with them. And, and, and affirm God's love to them. And maybe a, a strong correction is needed that the Holy Spirit's going to do. So notice verse 16 now, back in John. Jesus reveals himself. He says, Mary. And she turned to him and said, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, and Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. He reveals himself. Can you imagine the, the, the tone and the inflection of Jesus' voice here? It was just that word, and she immediately knew, it's, it's my Savior, it's my teacher, it's my Lord. And what a blessed revelation for her. And it seems, according between verse 16 and 17, that she grabbed a hold of him. And Jesus' response in verse 17 is, don't cling to me. Now, some have mistakenly used this verse, cling to me, to infer that Jesus and Mary had some kind of sexual relationship because the root behind the word has some sexual connotations in a different context. But there's in no way any kind of relationship between Jesus. I was talking to a sister last night. Even though a word might have a definition, context always drives the definition. So for example, you could say that, you can say that I love Colorado. And some of you, I'm not sure why, could say, I love the Broncos. <laughs> Just want to make sure we're awake today. And then you say, I love ice cream. And then you say, I love God. You use the same English word, but I hope you have different meanings depending on where it, the context is. I hope your love for God is more than your love for Colorado. I hope it's a different type of, it's not, it's not the same meaning because the context is different. Well, it's the same here. This word in the context just means he, she grabbed onto him. I, I, I get the sense of an embrace. But let me show you another place. It's not the same Greek word, but it's the same thing that's happening. Turn over to Matthew chapter 29, or 28 just for a minute. If you try to turn to 29, you won't find it. Matthew 28, because there is no Matthew 29. So Matthew 28 we see another uh, example. It's a different Greek word, but it's the same thing that's happening. Uh, in Matthew 28, verse 9, it says, 
And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. So here's a group of ladies that are holding him tightly. Here's Mary Magdalene probably embracing him and giving him a big hug. And Jesus says, Don't cling to me because... And I, I think that the emphasis here in verse 17 is in the verbs. Don't cling to me, but go. The, the emphasis is, Mary, as much as you're happy to see me, you still have work to do. Don't cling to me. Spread this message that I'm alive. Go back and tell my brethren that I'm alive. And let go and move forward. Let go and move forward. Tell him that I am not yet ascended to my father, but I will, I'm going to, but I haven't yet. And it would bring great encouragement as we see in verse 18, she immediately obeyed. Immediately obeyed. Verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week. By the way, church, what's the first day of the week? Mark that. Just might want to jot it down. First day of the week is Sunday. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Peace to you on the same day and evening. They're gathered together in, in a room because they're afraid of the Jews. And this is a, a great place to pause and talk about something that I've taught in depth in previous studies. But I want to just touch on it today because it's an important phrase. That first day of the week, they're gathered together. The early church seemed to gather together always for worship on the first day of the week. What day of the week did Jesus rise again from the dead? The first day of the week. He rose again on Sunday. And because he rose again on the first day of the week, it seems that the worship, the central focus of worship for the Christian church, both Jew and Gentile now, is on the first day of the week. Even in the early church, the early believers were Jewish, and they began to gather. They, they gathered together on the first day of the week. And I say this because people will come around and question things. And one of the questions that will come up is something like this. When, and it's trying to trap you. But they'll ask something like this. When did Christians change the Sabbath? Or why do you worship on Sunday and not Sabbath? Or Sunday is the mark of the beast. And you laugh, but that's a popular teaching in some groups today. The answer to the question, when did the Sabbath change, is it didn't. The Sabbath is always, to the Jew, Saturday. Sabbath is always Saturday. Remember, it, the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant that God made with the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. And even though there are those today, like the Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists that adhere to Sabbath-day worship, some claim that Sunday worship is forbidden. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, we had fun last night because the room was filled with people last night worshiping on Saturday. 
So if somebody comes to you and say, you know, you go to Calvary, yeah, well, you guys worship the beast. What? Yeah, you worship on Sunday. And then for the Saturday night crowd, I can say, you, you can tell them, no, I'm, I worship on Saturday because I go to Saturday night service. Because the Bible says that you can worship God on any day of the week. Well, we don't have a, just a Sabbath day, but rather we have a Sabbath God. You see, the Sabbath was a shadow. It was a shadow of the coming perfect rest that will be given to us by Jesus. Because what does he do when he comes into the room? Peace be to you. And you see both in Acts chapter 20, you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, examples of the church meeting on the first day of the week. Again, I put this, I did this in depth. So you can go to calvaryaurora.org, up in the search engine, you can put Sabbath. Just put that word and the Bible study that, that we taught on that topic will pop up. But enough for us today. You see them gather together. It happens to be the day that, they resur that Jesus resurrected. It's in the evening. They're gathering together. They're assembling. They're assembling because of the fear of the Jews. And, and they're worshiping. Jesus shows up right in the midst. The Sabbath day was a day of rest and a shadow pointing to the rest that was brought by Jesus Christ. So don't let anyone judge you on what day you worship God. Romans chapter 14 verse 5 says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Shadows are interesting because shadows are cast by someone or something. The shadow is not the someone or something. Like a photograph, like a picture. You know, when I'm traveling, I have my phone with me, and as I'm praying uh, for my family, or I, I, just want to I just want to remember my wife or my kids, I'll pull a picture out. And there it is. It's right on my phone. And it'll bring me comfort, and it'll bring me a great memory. And, and then when I come home, when I come home, and I walk through the door, and Marie wants to greet me, or she wants to give me a hug, I said, no, no, babe, I don't need you, because I have your picture right here. <laughs> and she's going to like, whatever, dude, and she'll walk away. But, but if I did that, she's like, you're crazy, what are you doing? Because when you have the real thing, you don't need the picture. And when you have the real thing in the fullness of the new covenant, the types and the shadows are fulfilled. And you can still have that if something, if, if, if the principle of the Sabbath is still with us, the principle of rest is still with us. The principle of working six days and resting one. I mean, God is wise, infinitely wise, that, that it's not God's will for you to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It's just you work your, yourself into the ground. You need to rest. But the reality of worship is you can worship on any day. And the church seems to set the pattern in the New Testament of worshiping on the first day of the week. So he comes in. He shows them their hands and his side, which must have been a trip. Uh, it must have been an amazing sight. And, and, and their response in verse 20 was, they were glad. And he breathes on them. We'll get to this in another study. But he breathes on them. And this is where they experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit to take residence in their life. And then he gives them authority to teach and to spread the gospel. He's not giving them the authority to forgive sins like God can, but rather to insert the gospel and the good news into difficult situations. And we'll look at that in another study as well. Now, verse 24. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, mark these words, was not with them when Jesus came. Well, that's a bummer. He missed out. He wasn't with them. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails 
and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, notice what he says, I will not believe. And this is one of the places where we learn Thomas's, we learn that Thomas is actually his middle name. His first name is Doubting, unfortunately. How would you like to have that first name? You know, it's just kind of a bad rap. I don't know that he's a doubter as much as he is one of those people, and you have them in your life, that simply needs more evidence before they believe. So I'm not going to believe you guys. I want you to prove it to me. Show me. Give me evidence. And you might be that way today. You're just one of those guys, one of those gals, that evidence means everything to you. Well, I've got good news for you. There is enough evidence in the scriptures and in this room for you to believe. Whatever question you ask, whatever skepticism you might have, there's an answer. You know, a few years ago, Josh McDowell, uh, a very prolific Bible teacher and author, uh, he wrote a couple books just for this reason. Uh, one was called More Than a Carpenter, and another one was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. They're not very popular today, but they are golden. You should grab them if you need to. and It'll help you in ministering the gospel to people. And just recently, uh, I was uh, watching that brand new movie, A Case for Christ, which chronicles the life story of a man by the name of Lee Strobel, who is also a prolific author and Bible teacher. And it's his life story. Uh, he's, he was a, uh, a news reporter, very liberal, uh, and very much into the evidence, and very much kind of like an investigative type of reporter. And his wife got saved at Willow Creek Church in Chicago and brings the gospel back in, and he refused to believe. He refused to believe. He refused to believe until one of his co-workers challenged him to use all of his investigative skills to examine the facts. And he went on that path to examine the facts, and wouldn't you know it, God had enough evidence for him and he committed his life to Jesus Christ. And because of that, that conversion, the book Case for Christ and Case for Faith and Case for Grace and all of the other books he's written have blessed literally millions upon millions of people that are just like him that need more evidence. Well, we've been in the Gospel of John today on Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor is our teacher, and he's the pastor at Calvary Church, Aurora, Colorado. You can hear this message again when you visit us online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or hear Abounding Grace through our app. Search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play to download that for free today. Pastor Ed, as you closed, you mentioned how the Lord both saved and is using Josh McDowell. Now, there's another author that really speaks to the skeptic, and that's Lee Strobel. And his book, The Case for Christmas, is our special offer right now. How might this speak to the person who is skeptical or wanting evidence before they'll believe? Well, you know, Larry, coming out of Christmas now just a few days ago, the topic of Christmas is still on everyone's mind. And for goodness sake, the focus of Christmas is not commercialization. It's not Santa Claus. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, who was in the manger that first Christmas morning. Who, who was he really and how can we know for sure is really what Lee Strobel tackles. He tackles the eyewitness evidence. He tackles the scientific evidence, the profile evidence, even the fingerprint evidence, if you will, as he matches the unique qualities and identity of the Messiah. 
And so what he tries to do for the skeptic, for the critic, is invite readers to consider why Christmas matters in the first place. Somewhere beyond the tradition of the holiday lies the truth. And I think just beginning, just beginning with a care for the skeptic or the critic is where the Holy Spirit's going to use you. And this is just another tool to answer key questions around Christmas that I know God will use. And even though we've got a few days before the next pick of the month, support the ministry or get this book somewhere else, give it away as gifts. You know, maybe you want to catch up with someone that you missed during Christmas. This is a great gift. Drop it in the mail, super small, easy to read, and a great tool to use for the glory of God. Again, that's The Case for Christmas, our featured resource right now at Abounding Grace. We'll send it your way when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. And you can place a resource request when you call toll-free 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. You can also order resources like this at calvaryco.store. Again, calvaryco.store. We'll get back into the Gospel of John next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.